Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting. G'day, Karen. How are you? I'm good. Second last. Uh... Yes, will this year never end? <laughs> well, it's ending. It's ending. There it's ending the... Next week, big ending, the public one. Yes. So I think we've got a few seats left, guys, so please come and join us. And we're going to be talking about 2022 because we're really sick of 2021. <laughs> but we'll be talking about the trends that are really clear through the courts at the moment. Mm-hmm. We've seen the pandemic legislation come through in Victoria. We're seeing new strains arriving and changes. So next week's going to be a lot of fun. And last year we got it pretty right when we did this. And we're up to number, this is number 79 today. We number you. 80. So please come along to the live part. You've got food. You've got yeah, no nice alcohol time. because we're a workplace team. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can do shots before if you want. Good. No, no. So everyone who's been through <laughs> has loved the place. It's such a beautiful place. And I'm really excited about checking the new um, event space as well. Yeah. So and the other great. part is you can come down afterwards and have a look around our offices, which is lovely. We've got beautiful plants, but for a while there, they were plastic plants. But the people who come and manage the indoor plants used to come and water the plastic plants. <laughs> So we didn't hire those people because they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> but now our office is starting to get lots of green and it's a beautiful, beautiful office, so please yep. come along. Yep. Okay, let's deal with what we've been doing, which is the mandatory vaccination stuff. Quiet week in mandatory vaccination, partly because most people have been terminated, so they're gone. <laughs> partly because we're really bored about it, but also because the energy's fallen away. As as businesses have said, no, we're not going to accept the claim. We're mm-hmm. going to keep fighting it bit by bit. And the first example is Burgoyne's case that came through where a woman brought a claim, took it right up to submissions and then discontinued at the last minute when it was really obvious they were going to lose. Mm-hmm. The employer sought costs and, not surprisingly, the court said, well, you know, the allegations are very mixed, which they often are in vaccination cases. They obviously include bullying allegations, all sorts of things. And bullying allegations usually is saying, I'm going to terminate you unless you're vaccinated. But nonetheless, they're matters that have to be tested in hearing. Mm-hmm. And so you don't often get the cost application up. And they didn't get it in this case. But the next case was Ferrato's case, which is a case that a guy brought a day outside of time. Again, mandatory vaccination travel case in New South Wales. Both these are New South Wales cases, not Victorian, surprisingly. And in that case, the test is, are there exceptional circumstances for the extension of time? I think this is probably the most novel application for an extension of time was it was based on DP Dean's judgment in Kimber, which you remember the much disparaged, not by me personally, decision, which was a sort of political decision that's been described by many judges since. Frado said, oh, look, I only just learned about it. And Commissioner Cross came back and said, well, read the judgment. The majority judgment's been upheld many, many times. Dean's judgment's never been upheld. It's not a proper basis for an extension of time. We just got rid of it. Mm. So I think what we are seeing is we're at the tail of mandatory vaccination, despite the people putting gallows up around Parliament and doing yeah. all that crazy stuff. We're at the tail of that, thankfully. And we're also starting to see that employers are saying, no, I'll run it. Yep. And if you want to bring this, I'll run it. And we've had this several times where people have threatened to file applications and we've said, do. Yeah, it pays definitely to, to hold the line because ultimately the decisions that have been coming, being handed down here are, are supportive and, yeah. and they're very consistent. And I think that gives us a gust employers 
generally a lot of faith. They can confide in that the right thing is the right thing and the noise, um, there's a lot of it, but it is going away. Yeah. So, look, that's a little bit of fun for you on the, anti, the anti-vax stage. There's not much more to report. Nothing in the big cases has moved for a week. What has come out is a case called Datto um, and Return to Work South Australia, and that's not the, the Datto family who we know are in every form of entertainment. This is Datto with a W on the end. Dealing with an issue which was considered in the High Court around about a year ago, and this the decision if I injure myself at work and as a result of that injury, some other part of me fails. Mm-hmm. Is that a fresh claim? What is it? And the decision in both Datto and Summerhill, which is a Victorian case, is... And let's use Dado as an example, suffered an injury, it was a back pain because of the stress of the claim upon them, developed irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. claim for irritable bowel syndrome was rejected, went through to court and the court said, no, there is a causal connection between the irritable bowel syndrome and the back injury. Summerhill, it was a, a leg injury which ended up in a shortening of the leg which led to a back injury mm-hmm. that came from it. Both of them were ultimately accepted by full, bench, full courts because they said, no, they are causally connected. Now, it doesn't sound magical, but it's a settling of the law across Australia on this issue. That's the first thing. Second, it does have an impact, and it has this impact. One, it extends medical benefits claims. Okay, the second, the second part of it is it extends the permanent impairment claim that arises out of it. Mm-hmm. So, as you were saying earlier, you know, the, what is the percentage of damage to a body as a whole? Yeah gets extended and therefore that permanent impairment claim goes up. But it does not extend the obligation period or create a new obligation period, which for premium risk is the really big one. Yeah. So it's two things. It could be where we've got either you said there's a causal factor that can create an issue to the body. It could be part of the same claim, which the obligation period for the 52 weeks remains the same, unchanged. However, in other instances, depending on what it is, it could also create lead to a new claim. Either way, the impact is quite significant either or. And the premium sensitivity yeah. part of it stays the same. So yeah. it doesn't extend the premium sensitivity part of it. So it's 12 months in Victoria. It changes throughout Australia, that obligation period. And so does the sensitivity period. So it's three years in mm. Victoria. It's five years generally up the rest of the eastern seaboard. But this is the big issue because plaintiff's lawyers mm. have two levers. One is... Do I seek an extension, a causation extension to build up my impairment claim? Mm-hmm. Or do I pull the other lever and say this is a new injury? Yeah. And that and the new injury, of course, is very, very expensive for the employer. Okay. So the benefits claim, impairment benefits means my client, the plaintiff, gets more money immediately. So they want to pull that one. Mm-hmm. For us, the really big risk is we don't manage this process because it's not such a big risk for us. That doesn't usually hit premium so much. It's not a big premium risk for us. The big premium risk is where someone says, I hurt my back and the way I was returned to work was disrespectful and hurtful Mm -hmm. and as a result of that I developed IBS. Mm -hmm. That's a new claim. Obligation period runs, can't terminate. Sensitivity starts, premium sensitivity, so it immediately becomes part of what's called a statistical case estimate and your premium goes up. Mm -hmm. So you have... Two maxing of your premiums. Yeah, we haven't even talked about stress and uh, all the other stuff that can get tied into that as well, Andrew. I think for me, in terms of in a practical sense for everybody who, you know, has come across this before is get the advice early on. Yeah. And I say that with these type of situations is that the creep comes in without you realising it. That's okay? right. It becomes complex very quickly and you lose control very quickly. And characterisation is everything. Yeah. So there are three instances I want to talk to you about. One is causally connected, the story we started with, no change in sensitivity period. 
no change in obligation period. Aggravation of a pre-existing claim, okay? No increase in sensitivity or obligation period, okay? All, all good. New claim, <laughs> new obligation period, new sensitivity period, and the past claim is still live. Not a terrible result. You can't get a worse result. Can I tell you the two other things that are happening while this is occurring in terms of the risk itself? Irritable bowel the, syndrome? Yes. Not, <laughs> the, okay, not so just, much just, that. Yeah, just checking no, in. We're a well-based no, person. Yeah, okay. Can <laughs> I give you the shits every now and again? I was just checking. No, no, you're just getting too much fun. Anyway, I'll say that in terms of from a safety perspective, Andrew, yep. in terms of the issue at the workplace and the employees, the risk is still there. How are you actually managing that, right? In terms of when it, there's, there's also that dealing with that. The other part of it. Now you maybe forgot because you've just talked about all this other, um, other nonsense. Can I can I help yeah, you with yeah, this? Go, because yeah. you, I know you've lost the plot. That's, <laughs> that's, that's causation issue. The biggest risk we have in managing injuries is that it's built around premium management. So you get injured, and I immediately throw my resources when you're injured to get you back to work. You think you don't actually care, give a damn about me. You're trying to maintain costs, mm -hmm. and you're right. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you come back and return to work, I'm going through the motions of the return to work to try and get you back to full capacity or at least full time so premium risk is reduced Yes. and cost is reduced. But that doesn't take away the stress risk of dealing with someone unsafely. Yep. So when someone returns to work, the investment is in the person, not the premium. Yes. The investment is in ensuring that what they are doing is measured, calibrated against their capacity, observed, supported. So these secondary causation claims, these aggravations, none of those things arise. Why? Because we're involved and we're caring about a person, not a premium. Yes. And now that I remember what I'm saying. I just was playing for time. Oh, yeah. I was okay, just yeah, playing thanks, for time. Andrew. The candle is, was is, burning. Is, <laughs> is, this, is under, okay. this is underpinned by your safety system. It okay, is. so it's tied in directly together and it ties into the safety culture as well because you've got a culture where these type of matters or incidents keep occurring or these claims occurring. Guess what? You know, you kind of see them keep going. People watch and learn and are influenced by um, such outcomes. But anyway, I, I think we spent a lot of time. No, look, this. we have. But look, for the people out there who do this return to work, their continuing frustration that they speak to me about is mm. that they can't get people away from costs and back to people. And as a result, there is inevitability of further costs because yeah. the people feel that they're not important to the business. It slows down their recovery rate. They're more likely to make future claims. They're more likely to get aggravations. They're more likely to have causative events that attach to the original injury. So if you focus on people, now, Joe, stop telling me to stop interrupting Karen. That is my <laughs> life, all right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and she spends a life interrupting me. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay so how are we going? We're, we're a little bit behind, but all not right. too bad. I guess my daily rant today okay. is around. I thought you're done already. No, no, no. We're, we're moving on. We're moving on. Move on. Is around what's recently emerged in the press of this statement of cancel culture, which arose during the Me Too movement where a group of women, primarily women, although Kevin Spacey, young men as well, said, look, it's not okay for you to treat me as a sexual object. It's not okay for you to hurt me because of that. And I don't recover from it. And part of the Me Too movement was an issue around not just gender, it was around the use of power. And I think that's a, something which was lost. The response to that in Hollywood and in, in politics was to start to get involved in victim blaming and creating stories, mostly untrue around the people who raised these issues, which now have a prevalence across social media, which has made them believable. 
And I guess what I want to say to you is, and the line that was used to me recently, the dinner by a guy who was totally invested in cancel culture, he said to me, you know, if a man touched a woman like that, they wouldn't go to jail. How come their, their careers can be destroyed? And I said, is that the test we're going to apply or is it the level of damage that the person has done to the person? Isn't that the test? Isn't the, the impact on the victim what is the key issue? And if we're an employer and we're looking after culture and we're, and, and we're proud of the people we work for and we promise them, as we're obliged to as a matter of safety law, that we'll provide them with a safe environment. When someone hurts someone at work, what is your response? Well, your response is actually to sack them. And that changes their life forever. And actually, that's what the Me Too movement said. No, take that person away. Now, I'm not, I'm not a sponsor of the Me Too movement. I'm just saying that's what it said. It said these people cannot be protected when they hurt and harm people. So what the cancel culture, this terrible euphemism, which is victim blaming, went to do is to say these women shouldn't really be bringing these claims. They're lucky to have a job. And, yeah, this happens and, you know, but they get over it. But this man's life's been destroyed. Well, can I just tell you the evidence is that by the age of 40, nearly all women have suffered some form of sexual harassment or indignity. Around about 20% of women have suffered psychological injury arising from sexualised behaviour towards them, for which most men have never been punished or lost a day's work as a result of it. But these people's lives are destroyed. So I just... When people utilise euphemisms like cancel culture, understand some misogynist term designed to blame victims. Here is the victim, a man who sexually harasses someone, says, oh, my life's destroyed and all I did was sexually harass three women. Ah, did you get the intake of breath? Because I certainly got it. Yeah. We, we have to somehow elevate the discussion around protecting people's dignity, respecting people and providing safe workplaces for anyone, whatever it is, whether it's race, whether it's gender, Whatever it is, every person who walks through our door at a workplace has a right to be respected, treated care, you know, with care and compassion and to have a safe working environment. But every now and again we get these euphemisms that sneak into our language yep. that actually mean something else. And what council culture means is victim blaming. Why would this man ever not get a job again because he did this? Well, because what he did damaged people. Mm. And under employment law, their employment should have been terminated. So, look, that's something I wanted to raise because it's it's now come up about three dinners that I've been to yeah. where people have prosecuted and I've just no idea of the data, no no understanding of the evidence of damage that has been done in this process. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, what is that social media news feed headlines aren't terribly uh, credible sources. Yeah, my son would call it clickbait, but what I don't even know what that means, but I thought it was something you fished with for a long time. But <laughs> my point is that lies become truth in social media yeah. and we really need to be much more analytical and be good employers. Mm -hmm. But, Karen, I'm going to hand over to you because uh, you've got a really important set, which is, again, moving beyond the victim issue and what does it actually mean and how do you actually manage that process? So can yeah. I hand over to you? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I've got this little slide for you guys. I just want you to put your mind to thinking about victims and how to support victims beyond the instant response. So generally there's a flurry of activity when something goes you know, wrong or you're dealing with a, a terrible issue. That's all, you know, we're normally quite well resourced there and in terms of our mind and our effort, you know, that's all there. It's what happens afterwards, okay? Mm -hmm. So I think putting in this, I've created a simple structure for you in terms of you need to think firstly, identifying in terms of what your obligations and your commitments are as an organisation to 
care for all people, and that's including victims? How do you actually support people? How does it speak to who you are and how you work? So part of that is culture, and a lot, you know, a lot of that has to actually do with, you know, in terms of your own rules, policies and, and stuff like that. So with that in mind, if that's what good looks like to you and that's who you are, what you want to be and how you treat people, irrespective of whether they're perpetrator, victim, people, right, what are the current and potential risks that you can identify based on what's actually happening? Can I just say, this is called the best friend theory. Yeah. Who are your best friends? They're the people who are with you during the most difficult times. Mm. And that's who we are as employers. Yep. We're the best friend. Through the worst times, we're there, not just the good times. Yep. So identifying those risks, understanding, you know, validating those risks as well. So in terms of what might come to mind for you, like how do you know this is actually a problem? How do you know that you're doing enough or too much in the wrong way? Which From that, you're going to be able to prepare and through that preparation period piece, assess in terms of what are the things that you need to focus on. So I like to call them critical risks. And then setting a clear narrative of why caring for people is important to you. Like, are you doing it because you have to or is it, or is it bundled up with the fact because it's the right thing to do? It is who we are and it's genuine for that reason rather than being clumsy about it, right? Yep. With that, establishing a clear team with defined roles about who's going to do what, who's going to engage versus who's providing support, plan the process, who, where, when, all that in terms of the logistics of it. Engaging with people, this is the part that's, you know, this is all important, but this is particularly the area where you're going to need skill. Setting a positive expectation around having an ongoing dialogue to support people because it's not something that you've done, tick in there, we can make it go away, we've done our part. It is, this is going to be hard because it will take time and it's a cycle. Having clear points around your inquiry and your discussion, obviously listening, that's, that's really, you know, that, that's, that's key. Acknowledging concerns, but also recognising, okay, so based on what we've heard, what is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to change? What is it that we, what is it that we need to keep doing? So it's not all about, it's about recognising what works, what doesn't, how do we be better? So from there, it's actually then crafting the tailored support that people need based on the circumstances and evaluating, like, did that work well? How are people actually going? What are the lessons that we can learn from what we've been through so that we continue to do this well and better? So that's my bit, Andrew. No, no, I think it's great. And by the way, for the people who do attend the live session next week, am I doing well enough, Soph? I can't say. <laughs> There's Karen's book of great things. By great, oh, thanks. Great slides. Oh, okay, yeah, great. What do we things. call it? Oh, things, book things apparently. Um, great slides. My infographics, Andrew. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, you get the book of Karen's infographics. That would have brought we another putting, 100 people. We'll yes. probably have to get an extension of right. the building. Anyway, so what we're doing, just for those, <laughs> so that, uh, we're preparing um, a little something, which that a something. Something, something, something. something. Yeah. Some of the most popular infographics we prepared throughout the year, we're creating a booklet or a tool out of that to, to share with you. Okay, so please come along. I did miss very quickly a union case, which is the ABCC. You've got to love a union case, Andrew. Yeah, and Doubletree Hilton case, which is two union delegate organisers who came on a site, supervisor said, follow me. They went in the opposite direction. <laughs> they were a bit rude about some staff. They were, they were irritating. Yeah, it's a life for union organiser, really. As an ex-union organiser, you yes. would have done it pretty well. Yeah. And the ABCC <laughs> decided to prosecute because... They're idiots. So, because the prosecution is successful, minimal fines given out. And it just, the only reason I'm telling this is the Fair Work Ombudsman is a great regulator. It chooses high risk areas like underpayment and then it methodically chooses an industry which it risks and it prosecutes. Yep. So, it, it goes hard. Yeah. And it's bipartisan. Yep. So, everyone agrees no one should be underpaid. Mm -hmm. 
But the ABCC is not allowed to prosecute employers. It can only prosecute unions. So we get this trivial rubbish stuck before a court where someone goes away and sticks a badge on their sleeve for wasting taxpayers' money. Bring There are things unions do which are really bad every yeah, day. Absolutely. And there are things that employers do with unions which are really bad. Why do we ever set up a single, uh, you know, a regulator which would never be supported by the public? Yeah. Because ABCC has no support from the public. It has very little support from the government who set it up. It's underfunded and has no support from the rest of the political divide. Oh, look, it's really disappointing because I think, like, it's such a, I guess, a waste of a resource, if I could call it that, because there's an opportunity here that you can actually create some positive change and actually really resolve or reduce some of those the problems that we're experiencing or employers are experiencing, like some of that bad behaviour. Oh, what like, is that bad behaviour, actually? Well, look, you know, in, C- in CBD, we've got organised crime as, as builders. So we, we, some, some of the build, we've got the building process in CBD building is a, f- a fraught place. Mm-hmm. It actually needs some very serious intervention because yeah. it's massively expensive for a whole lot of reasons, including bad union behaviour but it's not the only bad behaviour that exists. So if we want a regulator to get in, let's get organised crime out of building. Let's stop crazy rampant union behaviour. Let's actually properly supervise safety. Yes. Let's actually do something that has a return. But having this partisan pissant regulator Mm. coming in and bringing cases that just waste everybody's time, you're not a good union organiser unless you ignore a supervisor. Well, that's right. So, look, the opportunity is there should they want to spend more of their energy and resources in that space. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, move on. That's just a let's, – let's go to the problem. Let's go. All Karen, right. over to you. Oh, here we go. Looking for the word. Jane was a union delegate at Craigie Bird Recycling Aluminium Business, CRAB. CRAB had an EA with the AMWU along with a delegate's clause that permitted four days of union training per year certain facilities, computer, locker, et cetera, and the capacity to represent workers pursuant to the terms of the EA. CRAB had several anti-vax employees who were in the last throes of termination under the mandatory vaccination orders in Victoria. Although Jane believed in vaccination and was fully vaccinated, some of her members weren't. They were aggressive towards her and fought against CRAB's process. (laughs) Jane had a key role in directing the waste aluminium products from the conveyor belt into a furnace. If someone was not present on the line, the waste aluminium could block the entry up to the furnace, causing a build of explosive gases, potentially causing a fire or explosion. Jane regularly left her workstation to discuss problems on the floor with members. The operations manager had advised her twice not to do so without his consent, pointing to the clause in the EA which required her to gain management permission and that management wouldn't unreasonably refuse. On 12 November 2021, several members approached Jane, asking her to stop work to support the anti-vax employees. They were angry and distressed by management's behaviour and demanded she act. She looked around for her supervisor but couldn't find him, so she turned the speed of the line down to avoid the risk of an incident and went to talk to the employees. 25 minutes later, there was a loud noise. Jane ran out to the crib room. Out of the crib. Out of the crib room. Nine out of and, ten. Okay. And saw a dark cloud inside the factory and flames leaping into the air. The furnace had exploded. All right. Paul, here we go. Was there a valid reason for terminating Jane? The answer is yes. Why? Because she acted in breach of the enterprise agreement, in mm-hmm. breach of a lawful and reasonable direction. Mm-hmm. She turned a line down, mm-hmm. so she broke a production cycle, mm-hmm. and she breached 
obvious safety. Yes. So absolutely. Now, the next question, did the IHS Act protect her from termination of her employment because she was a union delegate? And that's just a naughty question because she's not a safety delegate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's not an HSR, so it provides no protection at all. The only protection that you have is really around adverse action. Yeah. Okay. And the argument she would raise is that I was required to undertake union duties, which is a protective attribute under the Fair Work Act. And the answer is it would provide no defence in an adverse action because what she did was unlawful. This is where it gets a bit muddled up where you've got HSRs who are delegates, Andrew. And all the time. And Remember, the only thing that the OHS Act protects you against mm-hmm. are these things. One, personal prosecution for carrying out a safety duty. Mm-hmm. Two, discrimination based on you carrying out a safety duty or doing something around your ACT. So, But if you act outside your role as a safety duty, you give up that statutory indemnity. Yeah. But none of it protects an HSR from termination of employment. Mm, there you go. You might say you're terminating because I'm carrying out an HSR duty and therefore it's a breach of the discrimination provisions and the Fair Work Act, Mm -hmm. so discrimination provisions within the OHS or WHS Act. So that's an argument. But in this case, Jane's clearly act unlawfully. So even if she was the HSR, by Mm -hmm. walking away from a live station without a proper check in place, by reducing the speed of the line, by not assessing the risk, all those things, she's so far outside of the duty as an HSR and in any event, the discussion was not about a safety issue. So she couldn't have been acting in the course of being a safety. So, but great question. Mm. Would Crab be liable under safety law for the explosion? Now, I'm not sure what people have said, but I can tell you the answer is absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. So well done, everyone. You got it completely right. And under Section 25 and Victorian-like provisions, um, so would Jane. Yep. Okay. Would Jane have a valid... Pardon me, a little burp came out of me. That was a mistake. I think it's my irritable bowel syndrome. So back to me. <laughs> Would Jane have a workers' compensation claim? Yes, there are two cases that say that a union delegate acting in the course of being a union delegate has a stress-related condition. It's potentially compensable. So I want you to think about that because it's a really big issue about how you manage it when you have no powers of managing a union delegate doing the delegate roles. That's it, guys. We're over time by 17 seconds. All right. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, everybody. Well, try and get in next week into town if you can. Yeah, please come here. Be here. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Now.